Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today we're pleased to welcome Boon Kim Pham, Senior Compliance Counsel of PVH Corp Asia Pacific, to give us a special rundown on practice in one of the most interesting jurisdictions for the compliance officer, which is China. Um, In my opinion, uh, it's one of the most interesting. And if you're not familiar with PVH Corp, you might be more familiar than you think. There are a lot of um, uh, famous brands that fall under that group, and I'm sure Kim will help us to understand more of those in a moment. Uh, But I'll also just give a a little message. Um, A journey that I've just started on in my personal life is that I've just gotten um, retainers for my teeth. Um, And so if I'm lisping or slurring a bit. I do apologize. I think that's going to be the case for the next uh, eight months. So um, hopefully the next time we will see each other, I will be dazzling you with my new smile. And uh, from this point, I would like to say, Kim, I can't wait to dive into hot topics in China. But first, I'd love to hear more about you and your background. Please tell us about yourself. Thank you, Mary, for the very kind introduction. And rest assured, you do not sound like you have a lisp, so. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, And just for all of our audiences out there, so a quick background first about PVH and then about myself. So yes, I agree with Mary, you may be closer to PVH than you think, because we own two homegrown brands in the US, Kelvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger. So PVH is 140 years old this year, The two brands are not as old, but PVH is. And last year, we were listed continuously on the New York Stock Exchange for 100 years. So an excellent company to be in. I feel very privileged to be with them. And secondly, in terms of um, my background, so I am actually Malaysian, but I've been living and working in China for the past close to 10 years. I started my career in the government sector in Malaysia before I actually moved to London, uh, uh, where I actually worked in private practice as well as for the central government as well. I really uh, started, embarked, I would say, on my in-house legal career over 10 years ago, where I joined my very first in-house company. And then after that, I then had an opportunity to be transferred to Beijing in China. And that's when I started my journey. So it's been over 18 years and I'm loving every bit of it. Compliance, I feel, is a natural transition from a career perspective. It it has helped me uh, become a more all-rounder and generalist in that sense. So I am enjoying my work very much uh, in, in this part of the world where everything moves extremely quickly and you do have to respond pretty quickly. So all exciting times ahead for all of us. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Kim. And turning now to your specific compliance practice area in retail, what are some of the biggest compliance risks that compliance officers in the apparel industry must control for? 
though, Mary, we are not immune, you know, like a lot of industries out there, but perhaps it is more pre prevalent in the retail industry in general. So your regular, you know, your bread and butter type of issues, which you would see like potential conflicts of interest and the integrity of the supply chain, whether or not your vendors are actually doing what they say on the tin. Um, these are some of the these are some of the areas, regardless of where we operate around the world, I think are evergreen issues which are going to continue, which do demand our attention. Of course, in a jurisdiction like China, sometimes some of these issues may be a little bit more difficult to detect than it normally would be, which means that having a very clear understanding of what your vendors are expected to do and that they are actually delivering, having that transparency and visibility into the day-to-day -day of the duties which they are supposed to be discharging is going to be pretty key. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. And this is a bit of a, um, a venting moment for me, but I think there was a lost opportunity for the retail sector when... Um, it's sort of several years ago now, but Ralph Lauren got into trouble under the FCPA a while back pertaining to their operations in Argentina. And I think when the settlement came out, one of my first thoughts was, well, that was kind of a slap on the wrist with a wet bus ticket in terms of the fact that they weren't punished um, at perhaps as uh, strongly as I had expected. And I think in that type of situation, it means that companies in the retail sector may have been less likely to take compliance seriously because they saw Ralph Lauren get into trouble and then uh, it, it was a relatively gentle punishment, I think, comparative to a lot of other cases. Um, so it's wonderful to see that PBH is um, ta taking into consideration a robust compliance program and thinking about all of the different areas because I think anecdotally, one of the things that I observed was that uh, a lot of retail, especially high-end luxury goods, they were one of the last industries to come to the compliance table and establish dedicated compliance functions within those companies. So PVH um, appears to be one of the front runners in the field by having a long entrenched uh, compliance function and, and risk mitigation um, program in place. I tend to agree. I think uh, one of the reasons that attracted me to, to PVH as well in the first place is that if, if you speak to some of our business partners who work with us, the first comment they would have is that you have a very comprehensive uh, background check and due diligence program, which they may not necessarily have had similar experiences in mm. dealing with other brands. And this could include both homegrown and also international brands. It's not directly targeted at any specific um, specific brand, but the general comment was, your background checks are really, really very thorough and comprehensive. You ask us a lot of questions. It seems that it, 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 we feel that we, we are in good hands in terms of the way that you treat this entire process. So... Mm -hmm. So it is something which we do we do value extremely greatly. Mm. And on this point as well, what I think is equally important to note is that although data privacy 
at, upon first glance may not may not always be on the plate or within the responsibilities of a compliance mm-hmm. officer, let alone part of a compliance program. But that trend is also beginning to change, Mary, mm. especially because collection of customer personal information, mm-hmm. how you how how you actually explain to customers, this is how we collect, this is how we process, this is our commitment to you mm-hmm. in order to protect your information. And last but not least, if you don't want to keep your information, if mm-hmm. you no longer want to hear from us anymore, mm-hmm. we will then make sure that we will make sure that the appropriate action is taken to delete the information accordingly. So I would say almost that PVH is a is a pretty much I'm not sure if pioneer is the right word, but suddenly having the um, ha- having the the foresight to actually combine the responsibilities of data privacy as well as compliance is one thing which we have done very early on in the process. Mm. And there are reasons for doing so simply because, if you look at it, compliance is about influencing the tone at the top and building building into all layers and fabric of your particular, uh, your leadership as well as the structure and the strategy mm-hmm. of how the business ultimately is going to be run. Mm-hmm. The way that data privacy has evolved over the past few years is, is not unsimilar. Mm-hmm. And that means that having a group of people who have had previous experience of actually speaking to the board, mm-hmm. influencing leaders at all levels within the company would then be able to design a program similar to what we would expect from an ethics and compliance program to drive this forward effectively and hopefully seamlessly within all levels of the organization. Yeah, yeah I think that's a really good and important point that data privacy is an area that sometimes we may not have responsibility for, but it's the right thing to do by our clients, by our other valued stakeholders to treat their data like personal information, um, sorry, like it's something very valuable. And I often joke, you know, if there's something free to attend in compliance, it may not have a monetary value, but I always joke that, you know, you, you sell your soul to get into the webinar or whatever because you're providing your personal details, which I think, you know, there's no monetary price on that um, for, for me as a consumer and then not wanting to be bombarded with, you know, messaging and, uh, you know, repeated uh, contact from the company afterwards if I'm not interested in receiving it. And this is a really great place for, companies to ask themselves the age-old compliance question of just because I can, um, should I still move forward with it? Because even in very uh, well-established privacy regimes, New Zealand, for example, and this may have moved on, I I used to work for the Privacy Commissioner's Office probably coming up 13 to 15 years ago. I'm not very good at math, as you all should probably guess, because like most of you, I studied law. Um, but it, it, even at that time, New Zealand had had privacy law in place for, for, for quite a long stage. And um, I was shocked to realise that uh, there was no prohibition against um, uh, opting out of receiving communications. Like if you were going to stay at a hotel and you needed to provide registration details, um, if the hotel had made it, 
and um, and opt out of receiving their communications. That was perfectly legal. So my point of view um, is that from um, an integrity perspective, uh, I don't want to trick anyone like that. So my preference would be if I was setting up something, if um, you know I was handing over details, which I find uh, I don't know if this is the case in Asia so much um, as I haven't been there in a while. And, but certainly not when I lived there was as, as common as compared in the US. Almost every time I shop at um, a store in the US, they ask me for my contact details. Um, and I'm just making a purchase, right? So in my mind, that should be a simple transaction. And they usually follow up with, oh, it's for the like one year I don't think warranty is the right word, but like a return situation or whatever. Mm. And so I hand over the information, but I don't really know what it's going to be used for. Um, so a little bit of information about, you know, whether they in fact are going to be deleting it after one year would be helpful. And maybe you don't have to tell the customer on the spot, but handing them a card or offering a QR code that they can scan that gives you information about what the the store intends to do with your data. I mean, I know because I end up getting emails repeatedly about the next promotion, um, you know, every two nanoseconds after I've I've handed over my information. But this is such a great opportunity for companies to really consider what is it that we truly need in terms of being able to provide a better service for our consumer. And then are we adequately informing them? If the law doesn't provide for it, and of course today's focus is Asia Pacific, and we, we certainly do have data privacy regimes flourishing um, and, and growing almost by the day in Asia Pacific, um, but there will be some countries that don't afford any data protection um, at all. And the United States um, holds very little data protection uh, for um, consumers compared with many of the other jurisdictions in which I've worked. So great area. Um, I, I love that you brought up that point because it, it really um, highlights an opportunity for us to be going beyond the regulatory compliance offices to the moral and um, ethical guardians of the company. I completely agree, Mary. And what you what you have just mentioned in terms of consumers not actually knowing where their data is collected how it's actually going to be used and how long it's going to be kept for mm -hmm. is exactly what we don't want to do. Mm -hmm. um, so in Asia, and you may know this as well, the laws are evolving mm -hmm. and changing. And one of the reasons that this is happening as well is that we've got the GDPR in the EU as a very mm -hmm. good example. So it has set standards. Mm -hmm. The CCPA in the United States is also another great example. Mm -hmm. So whilst we don't actually have a unified region-wide um, single piece of law, which which is compatible or comparable, I would say, with the mm -hmm. GDPR, mm -hmm. the fact that countries, for example, like South Korea has one mm -hmm. of the strictest uh, privacy law regimes, uh, Singapore is picking up, picking up not far behind. Mm -hmm. Japan, APPI as well. And last but not least, of course, China, where mm -hmm. the Draft Personal Information and Protection Act mm -hmm. was actually promulgated last year in October and is going to be is, is going to be the law once it actually goes through the necessary motions uh, to, to be passed as law in China. Mm -hmm. So it is it is a trend where consumers are going to get more and more uh, they, they will be more alert in terms mm -hmm. of 
how their personal information is going to be used. Mm-hmm. And the choice, having a choice in the matter and providing the consent is going to be key. Mm. So just on a side note, and you may or may not have heard of this. So on the 15th of March, the is actually the National Consumer Day, mm. also here in China, where... <laughs> The CCTV, which is the China Central Television Network, actually has a an annually they have they have the, the they have actually a program highlighting or how I would like to describe it is the naming and shaming program mm. of any companies that uh, are not actually complying with regulatory requirements or or, or any other topics uh, of interest to your to your regular consumer. Wow. So what was interesting was that in this year's program, there were a couple of companies who were actually named and shamed for actually installing closed circuit television cameras in their retail stores mm. without actually notifying the consumers wow. that they were actually recording. And recording is one thing, of course, it was the facial features, which are part of your biometric data, which was then captured so imagine if you walked into a store and all you wanted to do was to purchase something. Mm-hmm. You walk away and a store already has your has has information on your facial features, which is for all intents and purposes difficult to amend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is unique to you. Mm-hmm. And the next time that you visit the store, they will have information on which rack or which area, which particular merchandise that you were specifically mm-hmm. interested in. So obtaining customer consent effectively and having a clear record is going to be the trend. Mm. It will not be okay. So it it is comforting at least for for us actually working in this part of of the world that it is not okay to actually think that I don't need to let you, I don't need to let a consumer know that I'm actually collecting your information and I can use it however I want. Those days, thankfully, um, and I'm pretty optimistic about this, will be gone mm-hmm. at some point mm-hmm. because the trend of the regulations are heading this direction. Mm. And it's a pretty easy fix in those circumstances. Uh, I assume mm-hmm. that it would comply with the China law if the stores simply put up a notice uh, at the entrance or in the window which clearly exactly. shows that there is a recording mechanism taking place and therefore the consumer then has the option to make the decision whether or not they still want to enter the premises armed with that information. Absolutely. And also in terms of the um, facial recognition, you know, swipe your face in order to make a purchase, which sounds like such a, uh, such a convenient thing to do th- these days, especially over here. Mm-hmm. What the regulators are going to expect as well is that are you giving people a choice uh, where you have an alternative method of payment? Right. What if somebody does not want to actually provide this information? Can they still make a purchase? Mm-hmm. So these are the things which uh, anyone that is any company that is consumer facing is going to have to be thinking about. Well, that sounds so futuristic to me. Um, I don't think New Zealand would ever have that kind of technology in place for many years. (laughs) Maybe sometimes it's a benefit being a little bit behind um, in advanced areas. (laughs) So is that the case already in China? You can pay with banks. 
Yeah, but you never know. It could come faster than we all think. Oh, okay. So, so, so currently, it's not it's not possible to pay with your image or your likeness. Um, you can pay. You you can you can pay with an with an app where if it scans your face and it recognizes you, there are certain stores where you can do that. Oh my and goodness! So, and buildings, you can enter buildings by swiping your face as well. It's not it's not something which is unheard of here in China. Oh, yeah. well, I was a bit behind and I only just started using Apple Pay within the last probably um, 15 months. So this is feeling very technologically savvy for me, I have to say. <laughs> One of the most uh, interesting features in China that has the world curious is the social credit system and how that is working in practice. And I think for my impressions, the media at least has made it seem like it's incredibly intrusive um, and pulling together a lot of information about the individuals of the, the country. Will you explain a little bit more about what it is and what some of the compliance considerations are, please? Sure. So I think just to level set uh, everyone and anyone who, who would then be listening in for our audience, the important thing is that the social credit rating system shouldn't be something which is con which is a complete um, completely new or novel concept to to most of us living in other jurisdictions. So how it is a little bit different in China is that it wasn't centralized. That's the difference. So the different government offices, or we would call them bureaus over here, would have over the past many, many years have collected information, but only pertaining to their area of responsibility and governance. For example, the tax bureau, the customs bureau, the labor and social security bureau. So they would have, and also of course not forgetting the administration of industry and commerce, which then became the market and supervision bureau, which is the commercial registry, that's the that's one of the easiest ways to understand what the market and supervision bureau would be. So at a very, very high level, the aim of the corporate social credit rating system, because there is already an individual social credit rating system already in place for the past few years. So what the corporate social credit rating system aims to do is to actually consolidate all this information so that when you ultimately log into the website, which is a credit rating website, the data that you get is actually an aggregate rating, which is a combination of the various different bureaus where they've, they've actually received your submissions, your annual filings and submissions, and they've given you a rating based on those submissions. So what it hopes to do is to actually for people to be able to see when you're doing a background check on a company, for example, and you see that, oh, this is the rating and I can make a decision whether or not I would like to go ahead with this company as a business partner, service provider, etc. The other thing which I did also want to mention is that in varying different ways of actually enforcement in terms of the decentralized approach we have actually seen 
for example, in 2016, the social security, the, law, the Labor Law and Social Security Bureau actually implemented a naming and shaming program where companies, if they didn't actually pay the adequate amount of social security, could be subject to penalties and fines, including being named and shamed on the website. And this could affect the credit rating of the company. And a more, a more recent one, although it's, it seems almost very far away, was that last year in April, during the peak all not so much the peak period anymore from a COVID-19 perspective within China anyway, we were beginning to see some form of stability. But the General Administration of Customs actually on the 9th of April issued a guidance saying that we will actually take action against companies whose key personnel are dishonest about their health status whenever they're entering China. And this will impact your credit rating. So, so these are some of the examples where you've seen uh, enforcement action taken, not so much at a central level, but perhaps more bureau specific. So these are examples of how it could work in, in practice. And the other key feature as well uh, for the social credit rating system is that not only do we have to ensure as a company not only do we have to ensure that everything is in order, the other thing to take into account as well is that are you working with credible third parties? Because the rating, the credit rating of the third party could adversely affect the, red, the rating of the company that is looking to work with them as well. Oh, that's very compliance um, synergistic, if that's a word. Um, obviously gets us excited once we hear that the reputation of third parties could affect our own ratings. So that's a, a key compliance issue, I take it. So, yes, absolutely. The thing is to remember, though, is that this is, this is still very much in development, we, we were of the understanding, certainly from publicly available sources anyway, that it was that more clear guidance was going to be issued last year. But we have yet to see those coming in, which means that perhaps more thought and more work is actually being put into this program, this system. And we could see, we, we may see more clear guidance, although I have no idea when they're going to come out, but from... From the way that the trend of the how laws are actually developing over this part of the world, I believe it is safe to say that it can only get more strict and more comprehensive. Mm. It wouldn't actually be a watered down approach. Mm. So what you know what would be a good approach to do is to ensure that we continue, you know, any company that's looking to continue to to work and flourish here, as I'm sure a lot of us want to do, mm. is to ensure that we continue to examine and ensure that our third-party due diligence program continues to be robust. Mm. That, and that, that is always going to be a key area, um, I believe, for, for, any, for any company, regardless of industry, looking to work here you know, and truly thrive as a business in China. 
Yeah. It's really interesting because um, what you've described doesn't sound anywhere near as egregious as um, the, the connotations from the media. And so I was imagining things like if you've had a bad day at work and call a friend to vent and then Siri or some equivalent listens to you dissing your company and being disloyal. Well, they, you know, they, they're categorizing it as being disloyal. I personally think that um, it's unrealistic to think that there's ever such thing as a perfect company and a perfect job. And uh, there are always going to be some things that aren't uh, that great. And um, it's unrealistic to deny those uh, factors exist. But then I had visions of, you know, that kind of conversation being traveling up to the government and then being like, oh, um, Mary's having a bad day. That's one mark off for her. Or, you know, um, uh, if you are engaging in what might be considered vices, like, oh, look who's going to the casino again. You know, the casino again, one mark off. Oh, look who's watching porn on the internet, one mark off. So it's not as personal as that, is it fair to say? I think what you may be referring to is the personal social credit ah. rating system because ah. the corporate social credit rating mm -hmm. system, uh, at least to my knowledge, does, mm -hmm. that is not an area which, uh, which the legislature would then be looking to develop. It's more a case of, are you, is, is this company actually filing its documents mm -hmm. on time? Have they, um, are they actually doing what it says on the tin? Mm -hmm. Are they actually incorporating companies, many, many shell companies, when they have no need to do so? You know, those would be some of the examples where mm -hmm. the, the intention at the end of the day really is to have transparency and visibility mm -hmm. that, okay, if I get this information, then I can have an, a general general comfort level who I'm actually working with mm -hmm. and that they are actually be going to be able to do what it stays on the tin you know, for want of a better description. Okay, so the corporate yeah. um, one sounds to be okay. Then there's a personal one that's separate and that may be um, a, a little different in terms of the information that's being gathered for each individual person's scoring. Mm -hmm. The personal, the personal social credit rating has been in place for a few years now, mm -hmm. as early as, and of course I stand corrected, uh, probably in 2014. Mm -hmm. So one of the areas where we've seen it in practice over the past few years is when people behave badly at, 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 when they take public transportation. Mm -hmm. They could get blacklisted, so jump, jumping the queue or attack <laughs> physically assaulting mm -hmm. uh, a, a, an officer who's working on the train, for example, mm -hmm. not cooperating. So these are some of the, the action that can be taken where they could be temporarily barred mm -hmm. from taking, taking flights for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So these are, these are some of the, the enforcement type actions which we have seen and it is publicized so not the ones to the extent what you have just described not to my knowledge mm. anyway okay. so, yeah. cool. well, uh, I, I was just horrified uh, earlier this week to read an article about a, um, a man on a flight in the United States who um, sounds like he was on drugs but proceeded to bite off the ear 
of the person sitting next to him. So I would be fully for um, uh, that type of thing to be uh, in place universally, where if you're going to bite off a piece of someone else's anatomy, yeah, you probably should be banned and more uh, for that. So that sounds reasonable to me. And uh, I I look forward to potentially other countries uh, adopting such a measure um, to to curb uh, extremely egregious um, behaviour in public that that harms others, especially. Absolutely. Completely agree. Excellent. All right. So um, the next question um, is about uh, uh, some of the case law in China. And the GlaxoSmithKline case signaled strong local enforcement of bribery um, all the way back in 2014. And of course, that was an explosive case just because the facts were so juicy in it. Um, since then, what have been some of the other trends in local anti-corruption enforcement? So I would even put the clock back a little bit further to December 2012 mm-hmm. when President Xi Jinping came into power. So, of course, GlaxoSmith. SmithKline came two years later, but in terms of trends, what I would say is this. We we don't expect enforcement action to slow down anytime soon. Mm. There there is, you know, work is actually very much being carried out in this area. Mm -hmm. We may not see big cases being publicized on a daily basis these days anymore, but it is work is still very much going on. Mm -hmm. And also Here, I just wanted to share with you as well, Mary, in terms of a couple of key timelines which show that, at least from a government enforcement perspective, they are serious about continuing continuing to ensure that this is a clear ecosystem and a clean and fair place for people to to actually be able to do business. Mm. So I think just to level set everyone and... Some of our audiences, yourself included, Mary, you may know this. There isn't actually a a central central Mm -hmm. single piece of law which actually governs Mm -hmm. uh, bribery and corruption, but it is actually a group, different sets of legislation, including the criminal law, the entire unfair competition law, Mm -hmm. to cite a couple of examples. And then there are various judicial, um, judicial guidance in terms of how to interpret a certain section of the criminal law and what it actually includes. Mm. So these, this is basically a whole a whole group of different types of regulations, which then would fall within the huge umbrella of what we now know to be the various laws governing anti-bribery and anti-corruption. Mm. But of two, so with that background, what of two, uh, two of the key areas, I think, which is worth noting. The first one is like in March 2018, China actually passed the supervision law, the national supervision law, which then granted broad investigative powers to the National Supervision Commission in order to carry out anti-corruption regulatory enforcement on officials within China. So mm. that's the first attempt at actually I wouldn't say codifying, but centralizing the anti-corruption investigation mm. efforts. Mm. 
mm-hmm. so that it all becomes accountable and everything is then reported all the way to a single source. So that that has been one of the main developments. Mm-hmm. And the second one would be from from a commercial bribery perspective, because it's worth mentioning here that unlike the FCPA, which is very much focused on no giving of bribes to foreign public officials in China, it is actually it is actually illegal to give bribes to anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So whether or not it's commercial or whether or not it is to a public official, mm-hmm. it is just it is just illegal. Mm. So the anti-unfair competition law, which was promulgated in 1993 mm-hmm. and then was then amended uh, in 2019, where the fines for actually <clears throat> for actually committing certain crimes, including in, including bribing, um, you know, private bribery, mm-hmm. has actually increased. So that's that's one particular update as well, mm-hmm. which is worth noting. Mm-hmm. And in November 2018, interestingly, in terms of uh, so there's actually a body called the State on Assets Supervision and Administration Commission, which governs the state-owned enterprises within China. Mm-hmm. So that one, I think, you know, Mary, I think you would be interested to know this as well, because mm-hmm. what that particular guidance, in fact, had basically sets out that state-owned enterprises, you should be setting up compliance programs, you should be hiring your Mm -hmm. compliance officers, Mm -hmm. you should also, in fact, be doing due diligence on your partners Mm. to see if they are actually compliant and at the same level which you expect them to be within your organization. Mm. So I remember when this first came out and I provided uh, internal training to our teams. Mm-hmm. I actually explained that. So the work that we're doing in terms of carrying out due diligence checks on our business partners, our potential mm-hmm. vendors, and getting them to commit to compliance provisions within our contractual obligations is not something. It's not something unheard of, or it's not something which you should feel is is an area which is difficult to discuss. Look at what the government is doing. Mm. At some point in time, if ever we were to find ourselves in a situation where we are partnering or we are engaging in some form of a dialogue with a government-owned company, a state-owned enterprise, don't be surprised when you know they may be asking the same questions as well. So it's a trend. Mm-hmm. Good. So, so th- yeah. So, so that those were some of the highlights which I thought was helpful to bring up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Really interesting stuff there. Um, I have a small observation to make. Um, you know, you mentioned the antitrust law. One of the things I was quite surprised to learn in China, and I don't know if the trend has turned around now, but anecdotally, I would say that most. Um, jurisdictions which provide for a resale price maintenance um, breach within their legislation. It's not very heavily enforced uh, these days. And in fact, Singapore went so far as to not make uh, resale price maintenance illegal at all. Um, I was interested to see at least uh, sort of a handful of years ago that China uh, is quite strong on enforcing resale price maintenance uh, issues. So, Um, 
if you're operating in China, do keep an eye uh, on that. Um, it's, uh, it may have been maybe more lax in other areas, but I, I believe China takes it seriously and enforces um, pretty strongly. And the other thing that you brought up that I thought was interesting is I feel like companies focus so much, too much on defining for their uh, colleagues what a government official is. Um, when there, in my opinion, because there are so many local jurisdictions where, uh, like China um, and like the UK Bribery Act and, and a whole host of others, uh, it's illegal to, to bribe a government official, but it's illegal to bribe the everyday man walking down the road as well, not just your, your public people. And from an ethics perspective, shouldn't we be encouraging our colleagues to just not bribe anyone at all? Like, why are we focusing on this is the definition of a government official, please don't bribe them? We want to do business honestly and fairly. So let's not bribe anyone. And then you're probably, uh, for those of us who are in multinational corporations, you're probably restricted from bribing public persons anyway. So in my mind, while it is important to canvas the government official aspect of the FCPA um, from time to time, it, I, I think some companies spend way too long um, you know, going through examples of, of what falls under the definition when from an ethical perspective, we should be telling our colleagues full stop, we do not, we, we do not bribe, we do not tolerate bribery at all. And, and that's the key message, not just, oh, it's probably going to be okay as long as it's not a government official, which I know is not the actual message, but that's, that's how I almost in, interpret it if we're going to focus too much on the government official definition. That's an excellent point, Mary, because like you said, it's better to actually go to the bare basics to actually ask everyone the question, why would you need to pay a bribe mm -hmm. if you, as a service provider, if you are good at what you do? Right. Because the only consideration, the only consideration if a vendor should or should not be on a company's books is whether or not they are able to provide a good service at a reasonable and competitive price. Exactly. That should really be the only two main considerations and nothing more. Mm -hmm. So one thing which I've always, um, which I've always advocated within within the, the company and, and also in discussing with my peers as well is this. The main thing is to see what are the what are the areas you know what 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 is the story which makes you proud about working for the company mm -hmm. so that you can actually equip your colleagues to say that, like, I'll, I'll give the example of, of, of PVH. Mm -hmm. I said, we are a 140-year-old company listed on the New York Stock Exchange for 100 years. Mm -hmm. So we do not, so first of all, we would not have to accept anything from, every, from anyone who tries to influence, to in, influence the decision-making process in terms of who gets to be, uh, who gets to be a service provider. Likewise, mm -hmm. a company of this heritage and standing also will not stand for any kind of unethical practices. Mm -hmm. we're, all we're here is to ensure that this ship, which has, which has been on her journey for more than a century, mm -hmm. continues to do so and continues to thrive and flourish. So having this conceptual high-level type 
discussions is equally important than just saying, okay, today we're going to talk about what is a government official. Mm -hmm. Because that, that is literally just one part of the equation. It really means a lot more. Because in fact, the FCPA, the the inaccurate books and records provision, it, mm -hmm. is actually a lower hanging fruit for the right. enforcement. It's the easier you one. Know, the, the way the way I look at it, anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> so ensuring that our people are proud. No, no matter which organization you're you're in, you must be proud. If not, you wouldn't have worked for the company in the first place. And because you are proud, this is how you should be behaving. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's really key in terms of getting the message across. Thank yeah. you for that, Kim. Mm, of um, course. Yeah. The next question uh, I wanted to ask you about was in regards to key priorities for compliance professionals who have oversight in China. I just wanted to share in preparation for our podcast recording, uh, you had informed me that the tigers and flies um, uh, metaphor is, is no longer used. And, and for, for those of you who have been uh, looking after international compliance programs for some time, you may recall uh, Xi Jinping, the um, head of China, was uh, uh, really on a, a corruption campaign, an anti-corruption campaign, sorry. Um, and his reference to tigers and flies was um, the, in, in respect of saying, uh, it does not matter who you are, um, whether you're a high-ranking government official or um, relatively junior, uh, I don't care, I'm going to root out corruption. And, and off he went on, on his campaign. Um, and uh, Kim very politely informed me that the phrase is no longer used. And so I feel terribly out of date. Um, I have been out of Asia since the middle of 2017. So, dear listener, a little tip for you. You're not cool anymore in compliance if you're using the words tigers and flies. So Kim, please help us. Um, what are some of the key priorities um, that we should be looking out for in our international compliance programs with regards to China in 2021? I think a couple of things. So first of all, although the terminology tigers and flies, we don't see it we, we don't see it as often mm -hmm. as we did in the beginning. Mm -hmm. the, the efforts, enforcement efforts continue to be strong, mm. which means that it doesn't matter who you are. So mm -hmm. that, that statement still holds true today. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, it, it really, at least from a government corruption enforcement perspective, it really doesn't matter if that government official is in the fourth or fifth tier mm -hmm. um, rural city. Mm -hmm. If something if something has been done and it's not, and 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 it actually violates mm -hmm. anti-corruption, then appropriate action will be taken. Mm. So I think that that is still important to note. There, there are no signs of slowing down. It's just mm. we don't actually see the terminology used as much anymore, mm -hmm. which is why, which is why I mentioned that the tigers and flies are in the beginning yes, but now not so much. Mm -hmm. Coming to your question in terms of what are the priorities, I think quite very, very importantly, especially given last year what you know what the world has been through, you know, mm -hmm. COVID-19 and what we're continuing to see in terms of recovery over, you know, now we're we're coming to the close of the first quarter of 2021. Mm -hmm. One area to always bear in mind is to take a pulse 
in terms of how effective, for example, is the speak up, the, the, the speak up, pro, the speak up culture, mm -hmm. as well as the, the hotline program and how confident people are in speaking mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. That is specifically after what has, you know, what everyone has been through, mm -hmm. the extended working from home, the late, the lack of FaceTime and all of this. It's equally important to ensure that people continue mm. to have avenues of discussion, to have avenues of redress, to have confidence, to actually come up and raise issues within the organizations so that if, if there is something which is not quite right, then mm. as a company, the company is then able to actually take appropriate action to remedy it. Mm. So I will give an example in terms of um, Premier Li Keqiang. So on the path of recovery last year, in, in light of co the COVID-19 situation, mm -hmm. what he was quite worried at the time was that, okay, we're on the path of recovery. We don't think, he was, he was concerned that, mm -hmm. that government officials may think that, oh, if we see new numbers of local transmissions, it's going to look really bad. Mm. So he absolutely clear. I'm not expecting to see a pristine zero daily cases situation. Mm -hmm. What I'm really expecting to see is that if there are new locally transmitted cases, we have to hear about it. We have to understand and then we will have to deal with, we, we will then take appropriate action to actually control and contain it. Mm. So using that as an example, mm it's really important to, to actually communicate you know, generally just from the leadership to, to, to all levels of the organization, mm -hmm. say that we are on the path to recovery. Mm -hmm. There are certain areas where we may see matters which require immediate action. And I still expect, or I would, I would want you mm -hmm. to be able to raise this to me. Because mm -hmm. what no company, I, I believe you know, out there would want to be in a situation where uh, we are all, all systems go in terms of recovery mm -hmm. to, to, a, to an extent where even if there were issues, they were then parked aside and not raised. And then it becomes an even bigger issue later mm -hmm. on when, when one does actually need to address it. So, so this is something which, um, which has to, which I think would be very, very effectively dealt with. I think at a senior leadership level in mm -hmm. any company, mm -hmm. to say that it's tough. We'll get through this together. In the mm -hmm. meantime, please continue to be open with me. Mm -hmm. So that compassionate, that level of compassionate leadership and expecting to, expecting to hear the bad news. Sending that message down is going to be crucial, because I thought I thought a fair bit about this question when when you when you asked. And as I think about it, I think this part ensuring ensuring that people continue to speak up even if even if uh, everyone you know has gone through something as big as this is going to be key. Mm -hmm. So so that 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 would be that would be what I think would be a key area of focus. Mm. And um, yeah. I, I find oftentimes that um, China can be one of the quieter areas in terms of, you know, if you're doing a presentation, if you're 
training on compliance. Um, it, it may take them a while to warm up and speak up. And so I would share um, and, and um, Kim, please help me with this um, where you see fit. Uh, China, like many countries in Asia, um, is a community-based society. Um, and there is the principle of Guangxi, which relates to social networks um, and leveraging those. Um, and so my advice uh, for um, helping with the speak up in the region is really invest time in getting to know your colleagues in the area. And uh, it, it may be worth if you if you have the, the time and uh, to think about having uh, coffee catch-ups um, virtually with colleagues in China one-on-one -on -one and build those relationships um, to help you get to know each other. And of course, that's common sense generally. Um, but I think China is a country that, that really appreciates that once you've built the relationship and uh, you get to know each other, um, there, there is a more of a, a likelihood of, you know, conversations coming up and trainings and so on. So would you agree, Kim? Um, I would I would agree to a large extent. I think what I would add on is mm. the the consistency, the consistency of the of, of the level of contact, mm. and also ensuring that uh, ensuring that even because last year the one thing that we couldn't do was to mm. actually have more FaceTime. Exactly. Well, in that in that particular situation, making sure that we still use other avenues mm -hmm. and methods of communication, mm -hmm. and ensuring that you continue to knock on doors or be mm -hmm. more proactive as mm -hmm. as uh, as compliance officers is going to be key. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. people are pushed for you know people are pushed to actually try and meet targets, for example, and mm -hmm. it's a really difficult time, and you're not and things are moving and changing so quickly mm -hmm. so they are going to need more support and advice than than your than when we were in more peaceful mm -hmm. times mm -hmm. that's i think that's the best way i can describe it mm -hmm. so of course i think we we have always been trained somehow by the nature of our work to be proactive mm -hmm. but during these difficult times it's even more important to ensure that we continue, we, we continue to engage in mm -hmm. frequent conversations. Mm -hmm. Building the relationship is one thing. Ensuring that there's consistency and providing that level of comfort mm -hmm. and security that I know I can come to Mary if I have a question or a problem. Mm -hmm. I know I can come to Kim mm -hmm. if I'm not sure about something. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually going to be penalized because I mm -hmm. don't know something. Mm -hmm. So these ha having having this mindset is actually going to be pretty pretty helpful, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. What um, oh, sorry. No, the the one thing as well. I think it's not it's not just Premier Li Keqiang who really values this. You know, as we you know as we recover to make sure that there's still transparency. I think the United Nations recognizes that as well. Because mm -hmm. very interestingly, and you may have noticed this, the the theme for last year's World Anti-Corruption Day was actually to recover with integrity. Mm. There, there must be a reason why they've actually raised this to ensure that you know to grow and recover is an absolute necessity. Mm -hmm. That's just how businesses have got to work and 
and come back to some form of normality mm. as, as much as we can. But it's also important to ensure that ethical values continue to be upheld and championed even during difficult times. Because difficult times will come to pass. Mm-hmm. And these are some of the these are some of the talks or some of the conversations which we've well I personally have found that uh, I've had you know the discussions even with other peers as well. Mm-hmm. How do you continue? How do you continue to have conversations with colleagues to ensure that they still feel comfortable mm-hmm. coming to us as a function, mm-hmm. coming to us as a colleague, mm-hmm. coming to us for support? Mm-hmm. or a discussion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really this to say that it will at some point, it will at some point come to pass. Mm-hmm. And we want to look back mm-hmm. and hear a sigh of relief to mm-hmm. say that even during the toughest of times, mm-hmm. <laughs> we still continue to ensure that we do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I bet all the compliance officers in China um, smiled once that... Uh, campaign was released. (laughs) I'm pretty sure of that. (laughs) What are your thoughts on the role as a compliance officer, as a leader within an organisation? I think, I think a compliance, a compliance council officer, it doesn't matter what your title may be, you, you are a leader. Mm. I think it's extremely important. And and I tell this to myself every day. Mm -hmm. As my as my former as, as my former supervisor, whom I respect very dearly to, to, to this day and always in the future, Kim Yap Chai, she mentioned mm-hmm. something very, very true. I may I have the biggest team in the company because everyone is team compliance. Mm-hmm. So I have always had that. Um, mm-hmm. I've always held that true to my heart. So it doesn't matter how many direct reports that you have. Mm-hmm. The role that we have, the influential role that we have, mm-hmm. is to ensure that everybody ultimately understands how important being ethical and compliant it is to the company. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, how a company continues to sustain and thrive mm-hmm. will depend on how they, how they continue to uphold and champion their ethical values within the company. So to do that, you do have to have a leadership mindset. Mm-hmm. So some concrete or some more specific examples could be ensuring that you are getting a meaningful seat at the table. We hear this a lot, mm-hmm. getting a seat at the table. Are you attending meetings? Mm-hmm. But more importantly, as we go on to version 2.0, 3.0 of how we expect our careers to actually grow and thrive Mm -hmm. is constantly challenging ourselves. Am I doing enough to actually partner or am I doing enough to actually engage in meaningful discussions with the senior leaders of the company? Am I actually supporting them in such a way that we've actually equipped them to a point where they are the ones who are being the ambassadors of Mm -hmm. of compliance and ethics? Mm-hmm. that they are proactively asking questions to their teams to say, do we think that this is the right thing to do mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. above above anything else, before actually embarking on a specific project or program mm-hmm. or a decision? Mm-hmm. Well, ultimately, that is the goal, I think, that um, certainly for myself that I'm trying to build towards. Mm-hmm. So 
when when we when and I find that by having this thought process, it's mm-hmm. it can be pretty powerful because it then changes how you think. Mm-hmm. It would not be a sense of oh, I haven't actually. Um, I'm not sure if I should be getting on the calendar of mm-hmm. of uh, somebody's uh, somebody's agenda. You will think, how am I actually going to get on a particular senior leader's calendar? Mm-hmm. And I do want to get on the calendar because. Mm-hmm. So those are the types of, I think, leadership traits which uh, which we or you know, if you if if you you know if someone in the audience hasn't done enough of it already, mm-hmm. it, it's something. This is a good opportunity to to do so actually, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. To yeah. say that here's what I can actually do for you, and this is this is how I'm actually adding value to the organization. Mm-hmm. Be prepared to actually meet with closed doors, but mm-hmm. nothing, you know, nothing, nothing ever comes easy. But if you do, you are persistent enough, mm-hmm. and you are consistent enough in your approach, mm-hmm. then it will yield, it will yield results. And I'd really like to share an example with, without any names mentioned, mm-hmm. of course, but I thought it was a pretty powerful message when a former business leader addressed his team of salespeople mm. in a nationwide conference saying that this, this lady annoys me to no end explaining about the importance of compliance and everything. She is selling the hardest concept there ever mm. is in the world mm. and I am buying it. Mm. So everyone in the audience, you know, mm. to his salespeople, if she can sell something as difficult as a concept to me, and we have such great product, mm-hmm. don't come to me to say that you're unable to sell because <laughs> she's doing her level best to mm. actually influence me to ensure that we are all continuing to do the right thing. So. Mm-hmm. I, I I see that as a pretty powerful p- powerful message, and I thought it was it would be helpful to share. Yeah. Wonderful, and I love the <laughs> shout out to Kim Yap Chai, one of our great women in compliance, also yeah. excellent mm-hmm. job uh, with her mentoring and coaching there. Um, I think uh, it's important to note that the seat at the table is no longer a. Um, a literal seat at the table. And of course, it's always been a a metaphor anyway, but thinking about the literal aspect, I would urge you all, even though um, I am as sick as as anyone else about having to get on uh, Teams meetings all the time, um, when it's the the big meetings, keep yourself on camera. Um, It is the equivalent of hiding under the table if you're not letting yourself be seen in those meetings. We as women have been invisible for far too long. And I know it's tempting and I know that there's a lot of housework that we could be getting to whilst listening and on a call. But even if you're not talking, if the majority of other people have got their camera on and it's appropriate to do so, um, please make sure you join and and hold that seat at the table through this strange time. Kim, you've been a vocal supporter of our book, Sending the Elevator Back Down, What We've Learned from Great Women in Compliance, published in 2020 by CCI Press. First, thank you for sharing with your network uh, and your amazing support um, about how useful you found the book. Will you share with our readers the impact that it had on you? Yes, absolutely. So 
first of all, I still think it's a great book, and it came out at such a crucial time when women in compliance, or in fact everyone in compliance, really needed that that additional boost and and recognition that the work that we do on a daily basis is actually meaningful, necessary, and crucial mm-hmm. towards. To, to, towards the development of an organization, any organization. So the stories which the many great women in compliance in that book have agreed to share mm-hmm. are very refreshing and really made me think in terms of, yes, some of the problems which you may be facing, you're not facing on your own. In fact, many times you could find, you, you could find answers Mm-hmm. by actually being part of a wider support network and a wider support group, which mm-hmm. is absolutely which is absolutely imperative. Mm-hmm. And the book came out at a time, I think, when people were more focused in terms of, okay, how am I going to continue to pick up the pieces from where we left off? Mm-hmm. And the book didn't just focus on, on, on compliance officers' stories from the COVID-19 period, but it was from other eras as well. So as we look, it's always good to actually look at history or your past experiences because you then realize, actually, I had like I had to deal with something a lot bigger than this. And mm-hmm. what was the decision that I made at the time? Mm-hmm. So that was really powerful. And the, I love the title of the book, Sending the Elevator Back Down. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, we do want more people at the top. Mm-hmm. It is a natural it is a natural progression and it's also part of succession planning at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So having that mindset, you know, even if it doesn't matter even if we are at the earlier stage of our careers or mm-hmm. middle or even towards the end when we're ready to retire, at any point in time. Something small or, or something that you say could really bring a change to someone and then ultimately guide them all the mm-hmm. way to the top. It's these subtle changes which really makes a huge difference. And these are some of the nuggets which I felt that by reading your book, which mm-hmm. has actually made a huge difference. That's wonderful news. Thank you so much, Kim. And thank you. Awesome for your time participating today and sharing the insights and showing us a little bit about what it's like to be in the shoes of a compliance officer in China. Really appreciate it. Wonderful. I guess uh, the only last thing that I would mention just in in passing, just thinking Mm -hmm. about sending the elevator back down. Mm -hmm. I would also encourage, uh, and this applies wherever you are, but if if you are working out of, of China anyway, it's important to actually be, you know, to, to participate in chambers of commerce to try and see what differences that you can make mm. to the wider to the wider community. Mm-hmm. And these are the organizations like this will enable you to actually benchmark, meet peers, mm-hmm. and also share your experiences and make a huge difference. I think I think it's really important as we carve our careers, we must also be thinking how how much of a difference can what kind of impact are we leaving behind for this profession? 
Mm. Very, very important. Yep. So that that was all that I wanted to to say. Well, thank you. Impactful last words there. Thank you so much, Kim. In order to wrap up today's episode, um, I'm going to do a shout out to uh, a couple of male allies, um, which uh, we have done uh, on the podcast before. And I think it's important to keep recognizing those who support um, women uh, generally and, of course, in our field. So, first, shout out to Chad Kleist. Um, really interesting um, fellow who's a compliance director. He wrote his dissertation on global ethics and feminism um, and is a, a wonderful support to the podcast and a regular listener. So hi to Chad and thank you. And uh, second, I wish to mention Maurice Gilbert, who uh, many of you, particularly in the United States, um, will, will probably know of. He, uh, I believe, founded Concilium um, and is uh, now the managing partner of Concilium Compliance Search. He's, he's no, long, no longer in ownership of it, um, but still plays a, a pivotal role. Um, and what he's currently doing is building a practice group to help place women in board of director roles. And he's looking for um, if there is anyone in our listenership with at least a 25-year professional career and you desire a board role, you can reach out to Maurice on plus one, 214 213 8875 or maurice at So um, for, for those of you who are looking, I, I, I don't believe there are very many concerted places uh, which are dedicated to uh, compliance officers uh, and women at that finding board positions. So I'm hoping that that will flourish. And thank you uh, to Maurice for supporting um, this particular line of work. And I hope that some of our listeners are thinking right now, oh, fantastic. I had been wondering how I was going to get my first board position. And now some help has landed on my lap. So that's all for us today. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. Uh, Lisa and I wish you a very pleasant rest of your week, and we thank you for your uh, listening in to us and uh, getting in touch. Uh, thank you for everything. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.